Here we are now with chapter number two in our series, Impressions of Grace and Grit. And chapter two is titled Beyond Physics. So in our plot, in our main storyline, we were up to the point where Ken and Terry had just got engaged and they are madly, just blindingly madly in love with each other. And the wedding is set for three months, a few months or something away after the engagement and Terry begins busying herself with all the things and she's getting a bit like oh there's more to this than i thought (laughs) there is quite a lot in planning a wedding it is a quite a complex affair with many things to consider and organize and get all lined up in a row and wilbur old mate ken well he sort of helps but not really because he actually He actually writes a book, because that's what he does. He writes books, and he's very successful, very famous. He's a brilliant author, as I've said before, and I'll say again. And he writes about about one book per year, which is prolific. It's very prolific. And I'm sure I'll say that again as well at some time in the future. So this book that he's working on at this point in his life is called Quantum Questions. And he wanted to write it on this thing, which is that virtually all of the great pioneers of modern physics like Einstein, Schrodinger, and Heisenberg, had a spiritual side to them, or a mystical side to them. And the book is, well, it's discussing that. It's discussing what that means. What's the significance of that? So he's looking at mysticism by really going to the people in physics. It's not a physics theory that he's going after. It's not physics itself as a discipline, but he's really going straight to the source of what what do we look at and what do we see when we listen to, well, these great pioneers of physics talk. How do they how do they describe their worldview? And well, we also have to talk a little bit about, well, what's the essence of mysticism? What's the essence? Like, what do you mean by mysticism? What's the definition there? And Wilbur says, well, the essence of mysticism is that in the deepest part of your own being, in the very center of your own pure awareness, you are fundamentally one with spirit, one with Godhead. So this is, we could say, non-duality, this is oneness theory, this is understanding the all, understanding the big picture, this is big picture worldview. And, well, Wilbur points out that all of these scientists and these physicists had a way of describing that and a way of talking about that and a way of having that as a part of their worldview, and it was very important to them because that's what they spoke about. And we can say, well, what draws someone to go really far in finding a deep truth which is new, which changes the whole understanding of... It's such a, well, let's say it's a... It's such a revolutionary discovery that it changes everyone's understanding of the world we live in. Someone like Einstein. Einstein is discovering stuff 
which is so out of this world and so ahead of its time that it just shakes it shakes the human it shakes all human knowledge it shatters old paradigms now what what drives someone to do that what's what's someone thinking when they're really able to work through that and when i ask myself that i think well they must have a very powerful thirst for truth they must have a very powerful open-mindedness they must have a very powerful yearning for something more an unwillingness to settle for what they've been told what they've been educated on and i'll read another quote because this also in- includes an Einstein quote. So it's a quote within a quote. So this is what Ken Wilber writes. Quote, According to the mystics, when we go beyond or transcend our separate self-sense, our limited ego, we discover instead a supreme identity, an identity with the all, with the universal spirit, with infinite and all-pervading eternal and unchanging. As Einstein explains, quote, a human being is part of the whole, called by us universe. A part limited in time and space, he experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness, end quote. So not only is this idea of, oh, everything is one, a theory, like we can say that, oh, everything, there's only really one thing and the boundary between things is an illusion. So I can say that, but here, Wilbur and Einstein are actually saying, well, it's not just something you say, it's not just an explanation, but it's a experience. It's something that you dissolve into and Wilbur has put this in his other work in his book such in his books for example no boundary that well there's a primary boundary which is you and the rest of existence but then we can divide it down into smaller steps or we can draw that line into increments and we can make way in different ways to dissolving that boundary and stepping into oneness and Wilbur then goes on to talk about well the world religions and he says well what does this mean for the world religions and what does this mean if we take this piece of information in mind and then see what the world religions are saying and he's got this example of the Christians saying or Jesus saying hence I am God Almighty Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, For is another example. And that, on the surface, sounds blasphemous. It's lunatic kind of talk. It's egotistical. You think you're full of yourself. But to disregard these connotations for a moment and to consider it in and of itself, the insight is not new. Because if we look at Christianity and what Jesus is saying about himself being God, and then we race all the way over to Hinduism and Taoism, then we see that, well, in the Eastern religions, you are considered a God. Each character is considered to be a God. You're considered to be one piece of the giant drama that is unfolding, which is God just thinking about the universe. We're all inside this mind. We're all inside the mind of God. And so therefore we're all apart and also realized as God itself, God himself. Or, well, at this stage we're not talking about gender. So when we talk about God, and he does have a good way of saying this himself, Wilbur. He's he's not saying that it's, It's not anthropomorphic 
We're not projecting our own humanity into the sky. It's more of a pervasive feeling. It's more of a ground. That's why they use these words like source or infinity or the true self or the original face. Yeah, so these sorts of phrases are used to sort of sidestep the God notion because it's so mixed up in misunderstandings. And Wilbur wanted to show how, why these great physicists were all mystics and they were able to speak eloquently for themselves about why the most beautiful emotions we can imagine, or can experience rather, is the mystical. And Einstein, Einstein said that. He was talking about experience. He wasn't talking about theory. Now, the other side of this, Wilbur is very quick to understand and clearly state, which is that, say we take our physicists, and then they start talking about all these sort of fluffy, mystical things, and if we're real rational skeptics, then we can say, oh, well, that's not true, or that's not what they mean. And that's one thing that can happen. But then we've also got the religious fundamentalists, or the literal religious believers, the believers of religion that are, well, they believe in the tradition, and they believe, well, religion is what it says it is. And they say, well, okay, so the physicists are proving my religion. They're proving my God. So therefore, I can believe in the God that I believe in. And that's also wrong. That's not what's happening here. To say physics, so this is a, this is what he says, quote, Notice I was not saying that modern physics itself supports or proves a mystical worldview. I was saying the physicists themselves were mystics. End quote. So it's very important to make sure that we differentiate a personal worldview that is in a single, a singular human being, a singular person, and a worldview as a broad web or a distilled structure that we place in our larger web of how we understand consciousness. And he also has this good way of saying it, which is, quote, to say physics proves mysticism is like saying the tail proves the dog, end quote. So if we have our traditional religion in one camp, we then have our rationalists and the hard sciences in another camp. And what he's saying is, these physicists who are mystics, they're in a third camp, they're in a different camp. And it's very easy to mix these two up because the third camp often uses the same language as the first camp, as the religious fundamentalists. So that's very important to understand. That's very important to see. And another way, I don't know if he brings this up later in this story. He might, but the other way he describes this, Wilbur, is he says that it's the pre-trans fallacy. And this is where you have someone who is rational equating someone who is post-rational with someone who is pre-rational. The rationalists see the mystics all as one, oh, they're just inferior, they're just traditionalists, they just believe in superstition, they're from a year, from years already past and we've evolved from there when really there needs to be a distinction. There needs to be a clear understanding of the difference between mysticism at a higher level, because they've really integrated and maintained the different 
stages of psychological and consciousness development with those that haven't differentiated. And then another way of saying this is, well, another argument or another put-down is if you if you use physics to prove your God or you tie your physics with your world traditions, then your world traditions are going to go down sinking when the physics changes, which it's bound to because physics moves forward. Physics is going to, it, it's a science, it's an evolving science. It's going to become more rational. It's going to become more refined. And that says something about, well, the wisdom of the great tra- traditions, the great religious traditions, because what they have to say, which is of use, is timeless. It's a wisdom that is beyond just the narrow worldview that, well, they were born in. So let me read another quote where Wilbur is talking about this, and this really does, this really is a good way of him summing up this whole argument. Quote, I had long ago decided that there were two types of people who believed in universal spirit. Those who were not too bright, for example, Oral Roberts, and those who were extremely bright, for example, Einstein. Those in between made it a point of intellectual merit not to believe in God, or anything transrational for that matter. Anyway, Treyer and I believed in God as one's own deepest ground and goal, which meant we were either very bright or slightly dumb. And by God, I do not mean an anthropomorphic father figure or mother figure, but rather a pure awareness or consciousness as such. That is what there is and all there is, a consciousness that one cultivates in meditation and actualizes in daily life. End quote. So Oral Roberts, I'd never heard of him before, but he is an American evangelist. And he's since deceased, I think he died in 2009, and he was active for decades, something like four decades. And he pioneered this movement in Christian Christian America known as televangelist, televangelism, which laid way for the charisma denomination or the the charismatic movement which is based on charisma so you have this you have this man in this suit and he's got this great big voice and he's really confident and he he's speaking in front of a crowd and it's being televised on TV and this is also tied in with the prosperity side of Christianity which is basically if you are good then God is good to you, financially speaking. And if you give money, then God will give you money. So if you give money to the church, you will, you will get money in a roundabout way. And, well, these tele-evangelists make a lot of money. And there's another one, which, is, which I came across the other day. who is called Kenneth Copeland. He's like another example of one of these evangelists, modern-day Christian evangelists who sort of preach the word and believe in sort of mystical things, but not really. So you can't equate these people with, with Einstein. There needs to be a differentiation there. And of course, it's very important that Wilbur mentions meditation and 
actualizing this truth personally in daily life. And that comes up again and again. So Wilbur is writing some letters to his friends and he's saying, still again, I found her, I'm found, I found her. He doesn't know what that means, but he's found her. And he's notifying his friends of the wedding and Treya, Terry, is also sending some letters and raving about how amazing this man is. And she has this sense that following her own inner sense of direction, her own compass, as strange or as confused as it might have looked on the surface, really was leading her somewhere. It was this feeling that she had that And she says that she had known or they had known each other and been looking for each other again in this lifetime. And she says, I don't know if I believe that was of that way of describing things, actually, but it's an acute and accurate metaphor for how we feel. So she's saying that this whole thing of, oh, I've been looking for you for lifetimes and then or we were together in another lifetime and then. We're looking for each other again in this lifetime. Sort of makes things a little bit spooky. It makes things like, well, can you really can you really remember your past lives? Do you really want to say you've extended before this beyond the life you have now? Seems a bit outlandish. And she says that, well, she doesn't know if she believes that. She doesn't even know if that's the way she wants to describe it accurately. But for now, it's an accurate metaphor for how we feel. So this whole thing of past lives is like I'm aware of it, but I'm not, I don't know much about it. There are certain techniques that you can use to uncover your past lives. And there's a long tradition there. There's a long, like there's a whole What do I want to say? I want to say science, but I don't want to say science because we've used that word in a different way. There are methods for understanding past lives, and there are also people who have talents for understanding past lives. And now we're getting into sort of the, the ESP of the transcendental spooky realm of psychic phenomenons sort of round realm. And... You can get into that. That is something to be aware of. And I'm sure there's a lot of wishy-washy stuff that isn't true. Like it would be hard to decipher what's really authentic and what you want to enfold into a larger worldview. Because remember, if it's true, well, it has to be able to be enfolded into the rest of reality in both a relative and an absolute way. So... That might be a that might be a good guiding principle for how you fit it in. That then again, maybe not. It might be a bit tricky. That might be complicating the waters too much. But all that aside, you can actually also say, but it's just a metaphor. It's just a way of talking. Like to say, oh, I've been looking for you for lifetimes. Well, you'd reserve that phrase for a very special relationship. A very particular moment. And like so many phrases in the spiritual world and in the mystical traditions, they don't make sense at all when you try to explain them. It's not something that you can use to give someone else a taste of what you're experiencing. And that goes against how words normally work. Like normally we think words are, well, you've had an experience, so tell me about it. And as I sit here and listen to you talk about it, I'll get a bit of a sense. I'll have a bit of an understanding of, oh, yeah, I can sort of understand how you would feel that way or say that from that experience. And yeah, 
But when we're talking about far-reaching, long-ranging, very different, very unique experiences of consciousness, then that really breaks down. It's not a matter of explaining something to someone. I can't really sit here and say, do you know what it's like to meet someone and feel like you've been looking for them for lifetimes? It's too much of a reach. It's too, it's too far. And to say that, well, no one really ever says that. No one ever does that because they don't have the experience until, until they do have the experience. Once the experience happens, the words make perfect sense. And this doesn't just go for finding someone who you've been looking for for lifetimes. It goes for all sorts of phrases. So that's another thing to be understood about the differences between words and experience or words and a realized structure of consciousness or words and a level of consciousness. So it's a month before the wedding and Trey goes in for a basic routine physical checkup which she says her parents have pretty regularly but she's just hasn't really does doesn't really do them just sort of every couple of years or so she's not religious about it if i could use that pun and her head's full of plans and questions about oh where are we going to hold the wedding who should we invite what sort of plates are we going to use what sort of decorations what sort of things can we do to make sure the preparations go smoothly and who can we get to do this odd job and that odd job and she's sort of sitting there on the the doctor's table being examined and she's just thinking oh what am I going to do and then the doctor's doing her breast examining her breast and he says well do you know you have a lump in there and she goes what no I don't know. What? I didn't know. And he says, well, it's right here in your lower quadrant of your right breast. You should be able to feel it easily. And then she, well, she has a go at feeling it. And yeah, she can feel it. It would be a cliche. It would be a, and she says, well, it would be easy to find this sort of thing if she was looking for it, but she hasn't been looking for it. She says, well, what do you think it is? And he says, well, it's large and it's hard, but it's not attached to the muscle and it moves easily. So it could just be a cyst. So he's starting to describe some of the qualities. And cysts do happen. I mean, breasts have an anatomy to them and lumps in breasts, well, they don't always automatically mean cancer. There are all sorts of things that can happen with breasts. And he says, well, what should we do? And she's sort of thinking, oh, maybe it is cancer. Because, of course, whenever it's you and you think and you realize it's actually, well, there is a lump in my breast, you think, oh, my goodness, this could be cancer. And the doctor says, well, because of your age and your fitness and... It's probably not cancer, so why don't we wait a month and see, because it might change with the menstrual cycle. And he says, you know, come back in a month. So she's relieved. She gets ready, and that's the end of the meeting. And now she's sort of thinking, could it be breast cancer? And she's afraid. She has a feeling of dread. She says she somehow knows. Was this a premonition? Or was it just a nervousness for the wedding? Was it just a nervousness for life? So, time goes on 
and the wedding becomes closer and they get very excited, still a little bit nervous and well, they get together and it's a beautiful day and for some reason, well, Treya seems to be in a real hurry to get married and she remembers that even before she discovers the lump and she does tell she does tell Ken about this lump and, well, he thinks it's nothing. And, well, they've got a wedding to plan, so there's no point worrying about that. They can't let that get things in the way because the, the wedding's in three weeks or less. Wedding's in just a couple of weeks, so don't really have time for anything like that. They don't have time for just be worrying and chitting-chatting about doomsday things. So they get married and he's... Very sweet to her, and they get a limousine, and he says all sorts of things like slaying dragons to find her, and these sorts of romantic poetry. And there's something in that. There's something in the pre- the the princess who has to be rescued from the dragon. Like, what does a man have to do? To find his woman. What does he have to go through to find his princess, to rescue the princess? And perhaps no more feared creature in mythology, in myth- mythological stories, is there than the dragon. And there's a balancing there which is the greatest conquering and the, cra- the greatest adversity has the biggest payoff, the biggest reward. The things that are the biggest reward take the most to gain. And they have the wedding in San Francisco and her Methodist friends, this is very funny that she says this, she says that marriage can be a prison and they're standing there in San Francisco and Alcatraz is behind them. (laughs) And then, of course, she also says, well, marriage can be also beautiful and a freedom. And then he gestures towards the the arch of the Golden Gate Bridge, which joins two pieces of land. So it's sort of very nice to have both of those metaphors there, which is the marriage is a prison of Alcatraz or marriage is the joining of two lands by a beautiful Golden Gate Bridge. And... (laughs) that's a very funny way of describing it and yeah they get married it's a beautiful day and they don't go on their honeymoon straight away because well Trey is actually doing classes to finish her masters and she has exams so she's got classes and exams while getting married and then term finishes up and then they have their honeymoon planned for a few weeks And also Ken's still working on his book, I believe, at this stage. So she goes back to the doctor for another checkup. And he says, well, it's a difficult case to call because he doesn't think the lump is anything, probably just a cyst. The way it feels and how she is and everything leads him to believe that, well, it's nothing to worry about. And, well, he also says... You know, you're going away, you didn't really want to have surgery to take it out because you're going on your honeymoon and you don't want to have a cut in your breast on your honeymoon. It's just uncomfortable. So he says, you know, no no worry waiting in, no, no worries waiting three weeks. And she says, okay, so everything's still going to plan and we'll worry about it later. But her mother is actually quite insistent because... In spite of the fact of them leaving on their honeymoon in a few days and exams happening, her mother insists you've got to get another opinion. You've got to find someone who can have a look at this. So she goes to another doctor and the doctor takes a look and he does a few other things, some exercises, some movements and, well... He sort of says, you know what, it probably could be a cyst. It's probably most likely a cyst. Something like this. 
but I'm going to send you to a third doctor. I'm going to send you to an actual specialist who can really, for once and for all, work this out, finally. And he goes to, she goes to the third doctor, and, well, here we are again in another hospital, in another place, and sort of explaining, well, this is what's happened so far, and this is how it is. Look, you want to take a look, and there's an examination going on, and she's quite comfortable around this doctor. You know, there's some good doctors around. And after the examination, he also says, well, it's probably just a cyst, but we can't wait to take it out. It has to come out really soon. And so she says, okay, well, what does that involve? Well, it's a pretty basic surgery. And she's still studying for her exams, but the next day she goes in for surgery. And the doctor says, well, what if there's a problem? And she says, well, then we won't go on our honeymoon. And she sort of really just doesn't think much about this. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? It's just this little thing. And... She's so confident that she says to Ken, you know what, don't come to the hospital, I'll just, I'll just do this on my own. And he's like, well, hang on, what a se- wait a second, no, I'm going with you. And she's like, oh no, I don't want to interrupt your work. And that's important, that's important to understand at this stage, which is that you don't want to encroach upon a man's work when it's something very important to him. You want to respect that. But also, Treya was, at this stage, because she'd been single, used to being independent and not very good at asking for help. And Ken, well, he's a good man. and He says, no, I'm coming with you. And secretly, she's a, a little bit relieved She thinks, oh, okay, it's good to have him come along. And she goes to the doctors, gets herself set up, get ready. And just before the surgery, well, a doctor comes in and starts asking her a bunch of questions. And she can answer them so easily. She's just so happy. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing could go wrong. It really is just so simple, like nothing could go wrong. And the doctor says, well, how old were you when you started menstruating? And... She says about 14. And what she doesn't know is that, well, women who begin menstruating at an early age are at higher risk for breast cancer. And then he says, have you ever had a child? And she says, no, I've never even been pregnant. And what she doesn't know at this stage is, well, women who have not had a child by the age of 30 are at higher risk for breast cancer. And then he says, well, have you anyone in your family had breast cancer? And she says, not that I know of. But actually, she did have a family member. Her mother's sister had had cancer, breast cancer. But she'd forgotten about this or blocked this at this time. And he says, does the lump hurt? Has it ever hurt? And she says, no, never. And what she doesn't know is that, well, cancerous lumps almost never hurt. And then he says one final question. How do you feel about the operation? Do you feel nervous or afraid? And she says, no, I'm fine. No need for any extra things or things like that. And well, what she didn't know is that studies have shown that women who are most afraid before having a lumpectomy for suspected malignancy are less likely to have cancer. Those who are calm are more likely to have cancer. And it's not even a general anesthetic. It's a local anesthetic. So she's in on the operating table, still talking to the nurse and the assistant doctor while they operate on her, still thinking that she'll be out that afternoon, going to an exam the next morning, and then off on her honeymoon the following afternoon. And once the surgery is over, 
and she's in recovery. The doctor comes back because what they had taken out of her has been examined. And it doesn't take very long for Ken to realize it's cancer. And they are taken into a private private room, private conference room, and the doctor sits down to break the news to them. And of course, well, suddenly, the whole world is shattered. Everything's changed. And Treya starts to think, well, here was this wonderful man They've been married for a mere 10 days and his new wife turns out to have cancer. Like opening a long-awaited present only to find the lovely crystal smashed inside. How would you feel? How bad would you feel? You don't even really know this man. And all of a sudden, you're married to a cancer patient. Ken stopped that kind of thinking right away. And she says, he didn't make me feel silly for thinking that. He understood how I might feel that way, but said, my having cancer made no difference. He said, he's been looking for you. He said, I've been looking for you for ages, and I'm just glad to have you. None of this matters. I'll never let you go. And it's tricky when you're dealing with powerful reactions because you don't want to undervalue them. You don't want to undermine them. They still need to be validated. So saying, he didn't make me feel silly for thinking like that is very significant. Because he could have said, no, don't don't be silly. Oh, that's stupid. But that puts down, well... Her own being, it puts down her own sense of feelings. Because feelings are real. Feelings are immediate. So it's a very subtle but powerful difference to say, okay, that is how you feel, that is how you think, but you should not think this way. And that's different to just saying, well, you should not think that way, or you're thinking the wrong way, or you're feeling the wrong way. And there's also this image of Ken feeling like the universe had turned into a thin piece of paper and then someone had simply torn the tissue right in half in front of his face. And that's a pretty powerful image of what it's like to have your whole world shift All of your circumstances change. All of your plans go out the window. And, well, they go home and, well, it's a long night because they have to make phone calls to let people know what's going on. The honeymoon is off. She's not going to be doing her exam. And there are also phone calls coming in. Phone calls coming in from the hospital with more information or more details because they assess again depending on the size of the lump that was cut out and other tests are done to find out well how it's behaving and as it turns out well it's quite a large lump and it's malignant which means it spreads it's aggressive and the cells are rather undifferentiated which means it's a pretty nasty, fast-growing cancer. And for Ken, everything is moving in slow motion. Each frame is containing too much experience, too much information. 
And he says he has this bizarre sensation that things are happening both very rapidly and very slowly at the same time. He says it's like he's playing baseball and they're throwing, they're throwing balls at him and they're sort of bouncing off at him. And there's too many. It's like, come, hang on, just wait a second. And they're just falling down. That's how he describes it. And Treya says, well, why couldn't someone call with good news? Isn't it enough for now? How about a ray of hope somewhere? And that just sums up the hopelessness. That sums up the devastation of what it means to get that news. That you have cancer. So that's the end of the chapter, which is beyond physics. And at this stage in our plot, there are a whole lot of unknowns. And that's the case with cancer. That's what happens when you get the news you have cancer, suddenly a whole bunch of questions open up. What sort of treatments are there? How long is it going to last? Is it terminal? Is it hereditary? Has it spread? How did I get it? Why did I get it? And the list goes on. And that's not even to mention the Practical things like what what are you going to do? How are you going to organize? What, what about your finances? What about your diet? What about your living situation? What about your work? And so on. So it's big news. It's big, bigger than you can ever really imagine. And it's very beautifully written how... They describe their experiences of coming into this situation in their life, Ken and Treya. So to summarize, I'll just reiterate the the theme of Beyond Physics, which is dissolving into the oneness of existence. And Treya and Ken had been doing that as meditators for years. And they had the theoretical understanding from all the books on transcendental psychology that they'd read, or in Ken's case, he'd written. And that was the sort of theoretical side. And then they also had, well, the practical practical side or the practice side, which is transformative practice, which is meditation and yoga and tai chi and all those sorts of things. And then together as lovers, they had that dissolving in love. And it was the blissful awakening and melting into existence that occurred. Well, when you're in love with someone, so you can use your relationship as a way of dissolving into existence. And that's what they had been doing. And that's how they went beyond physics. That's what beyond physics means. And this is an important thing to understand because it's it's really one of the key themes of the book. It's another key theme, which is dissolving into existence, becoming one with existence. And, well, at this stage... Their love has taken a very sharp turn, a very sudden shock to find that Treya has cancer just 10 days after they've been married. So we'll be back soon with the next chapter. And that's all I have to say for now.